Nothing's going your way, you've had a bad day, it's good to keep it simple. Michelle and Seth say take a deep breath from fade to gray, it's mental. Hello everybody and welcome back to Mental, your favorite mental health podcast. We know, it's okay, you can admit it, we're a lot of fun here. I am your host, one of them, Michelle Collins, and sitting in the chair, not next to me, that would be nice, but he's not, but on the other end of the other microphone is Seth Showalter. Say hello, Seth. Hello there. And as an added bonus, and for more fun today, we have another person sharing the microphone with us. Many people know who this is, but if you don't, you should look her up. She's a lot of fun. Ms. P.K. Langley. Say hello, P.K. Hello. Yay. All right. (laughs) So, it's ironic that we're about to, to talk about a really serious subject, and, and I want to give it all of the seriousness that it absolutely deserves. However, I'm almost incapable of it today, apparently. I cannot quit laughing today for some reason. So We're going to talk about major depressive disorder <laughs> and about how this can be pervasive and how people can really struggle with it. <laughs> Are you serious? Uh, lady, I... We even brought on a third guest (laughs) to try to help with this, and I can't. I can't talk. Just the irony of major depressive disorder. Just the irony of talking about major depressive disorder, and I cannot quit laughing. I'm sorry. I don't know what to do about it. Anyway, go ahead. So we're going to talk about major depressive disorder and about how this can be so pervasive and how it can be a really tough thing to battle. And oftentimes when a person is very depressed, the one thing that they can't do is laugh and like chuckle and like let loose and have fun. And so while we're going to cover something that I feel is very important and is very serious, we should be very happy that Michelle is having giggling fits (laughs) because this is a sign that she is doing well. Would you agree, PK? It can be. It can be a sign that she's doing well, or it could be a sign of sugar levels, or a, any number <laughs> of that. things could be going There's on with that. Michelle today. She could be overly tired because we get giddy when we're overly tired. I know that mm-hmm. I do. So, I mean, who knows? I'm just going to say that in my defense, I've been pushed a couple times, Seth, while we've been communicating. You have gone out of your way. To trigger me with some sh- with some shit that makes me laugh, and you know you have. Don't give me that surprise look. You know you have. Don't sing at me either. Okay, Don't see, sing at me. The way, <laughs> the way oh in which you came <laughs> in this conversation. Yeah, I have laid some landmines, but truthfully, we need them. Yes. And honestly. Let's go ahead, and I know we have P.K. Langley here with us today, and I'm very, very excited about that. One of the things, P.K., that we like to do in our show, before we really jump into the topic, is we like to do what we call a mental minute. Essentially, we give a little history, a little background on how we are personally doing. And so since Michelle has been struggling to contain herself, and we've done at least 10 takes now to try to get an (laughs) intro out... 
let's start with her. Uh, And I know that's kind of rude because you are the guest, PK, and I want to show you proper respect. But I I think that we need to let Michelle get some of this out. Mm -hmm. So so what's going on? (laughs) I don't know. It's just a day of absurdity to me. Just so many areas. Just so much absurdity is evident everywhere. Absurdity. Yes. I, I mean... You you know I have a very short <laughs> I have a very short bullshit meter. <laughs> and so when there's a lot of bullshit evident in the atmosphere, I, apparently this is my reaction. I mean at this point, sometimes it makes me angry, other day, apparently it makes me laugh today. There's just so much out there right now that's so emotionally jarring that that when something truly absurd presents itself, you have no choice but to laugh at it. And that's kind of how my day started. <laughs> What what is it about humanity that causes us to put up with so much bullshit without calling it to the carpet? Like we just know. we dance around it. Like there's this big fat turd in the middle middle of the living room, and we're all just dancing around it, and we're saying, "Oh, isn't that a lovely turd? You know, is, is, isn't that exactly. wow? It just doesn't smell bad at all. I mean, it's not got hair growing on it or anything. We're just oh. gonna we're just gonna pretend that it's just a lovely turd. It looks like it's even doing yoga. Yes, yes, absolutely. You know, it's it's doing poses on the living room floor, and we're just gonna admire this just this this it. beautiful turd. And wow, the, the look at the just relax. Look at the color of the turd. You know, wow. Oh look at this. And 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 you know, I mean, we we have these weird social things that we do where instead of just calling a turd a turd, we're like, well, you know, we we feel compelled to be nice about it and not call it for what it is, you know. And the people that do, they they get labeled as assholes, you know, in society when really they're just they're just being blunt and truthful and. God, I would really like to pull blunt and truthful out of my pocket once in a while and just go, that's a piece of shit. Me too. Absolutely. I would love to be blunt and truthful sometimes without, without I being, did yesterday. Late, without being overly concerned about somebody's feelings. And I don't mean that to sound negative. I'm obviously concerned about people's emotions. I'm very keyed into them. And that's why I tend to soften what I say most of the time because I am trying to avoid that confrontation or that hurt feeling or whatever. But yes, sometimes I would really just like to have the ability to just say what I think without fear of the repercussion. Yes. You know, or, or the look on somebody's face because they're having to hear something that they maybe don't like to hear. And that's what I mean by absurd. There's just so much absurd stuff out there that, that, you know, every now and then, yeah, I think we do have to just call it what it is. And apparently my rea- my response today is humor, which is, that's cool. I'm good with humor. Yeah. I will say my stomach hurts from laughing most of the day, though. So. <laughs> And Seth just keeps jabbing me. Don't think I missed that so little comment. I don't. I heard that comment. I don't. You. You don't. You're so serious all the time. You I know? am. Like it's so good. It's so good to see you let loose. You know. And we have. We here at Mental have really been focused on providing quality clinical material. <laughs> yeah. And. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just so good to see you be real, you know. Oh, yeah, and I, you're I'm always real. You're now. always authentic. 
I'm not I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that I very much appreciate and value people in my life who are authentic, real, and down to earth and just call shit what well, it yeah, is. Yeah, because it's refreshing and because most I people can, won't do that. So Right. And I appreciate that about you. Well, thank you. How's the rest of your week been, other than this morning? Uh, I, I mean, everybody knows it's it's I'm down to the wire, so everything is about detail at the moment. Everything is everything else has kind of taken second place to having to get in the requirements of my day to compete. So, unfortunately, I'm spending an inordinate amount of time in the gym, even more so than normal. My calories are lower than ever. My water intake is much higher than normal, and yeah. And now I'm just trying to finalize details. And so there's a lot of them. And it's a little little daunting, but also exciting and terribly frightening. So, <laughs> so maybe laughter is just the best medicine for all of that. I think it might yeah, be. Yeah, it might be. But I now give forth to you or to PK to share your mental minute. PK? He always goes last. See, he does this constantly. I. It's a guess. I appreciate that. <laughs> That is so kind of you. I will. I will go next. <laughs> of course, I listen uh, to people with mental health issues all week. I had a lovely, uh, uh, you know, after you turn fifty, you have to do certain things to be healthy, and one of those is the roto rooter. <gasps> so yeah, I had a, a lovely uh, colonoscopy this week, which was was wonderful. You know, uh, <laughs> instead of opening your mouth and saying "ah," you do the reverse and. <laughs> Um, I got to do that for a doctor this week and, um, that was, that was exciting, not, and I got to talk to clients, uh, this week and, you know, it is to me, the, the amazing thing about people that are in the mental health field is that we throw ourselves on a, a pit of blazing fire every day to to be out there talking to people that are in crisis, people that are screaming at us at the top of their lungs in psychosis, in in this tangential rant, and they'll go from one bunny rabbit trail to another, and all you're trying to do is just get your job done. You just want <laughs> to condense your job into this mini micro minute and get it done and get them off the phone. And they take 25 minutes for you to just get <laughs> one box ticked. And so, you know, you're sacrificing so much of your mental health and well-being by by doing that and exposing yourself to them. And uh, it, it's just such an irony that mental health workers are your most beat up bunch of individuals. And yet they they consistently lay down and tie themselves to the railroad track and say, hey, train, I'm ready. Let's do this again. You know, one more day. Let's do it again. You know, and sometimes I'll get off the phone with these folks. And, you know, it's it's the one person that you help that is grateful and and you feel like you've done something good there that gets you over mm -hmm. to the next week or the next week, you know, and there may be 37 people in between that are screaming and shouting at you and calling you every name in the book and you're an asshole and you just can't do anything right. That's the world of mental health. So, so that's been my exciting week so far. And, uh, you know, thank God for my lovely wife who always helps me to decompress and, mm -hmm. 
and uh, tell me how wonderful I am and boost my <laughs> ego at the end of the day. Thank God As for her. As she should. Yes. As she should. <laughs> Shout out to Ashley. Just thank you, Ashley. She she's in the room, right? Yes. She's she hearing you give her a shout out? Yes, she is. She's oh, sit- good. She's sitting good. back on. Yes. Yes, that's me. <laughs> Someone's trying to earn some brownie points. Yes. <laughs> she likes those. That's okay. There's cooters. nothing wrong with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's wonderful when you you've been with someone for 22 years and you're still crazy about them. And I'm I'm crazy that in love good. with that girl. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. So to you, sir. All right, Seth. <sighs> so it's been it's it's just a really interesting time in the world, and this week has been. It's been busy in that uh, Monday and Tuesday. Uh, work was it's fine. I was teaching a class I, I know how to do. It's not my favorite class to teach. But I started a class this morning, and I am absolutely in love with the person I'm training. And just I, Evervescent personality is going to be fabulous on the phones, is going to be able to make that connection and really help people. And I am very excited about it, being able to do that uh, in my role is is pretty rewarding in my experience, especially when they're good clinicians and you know they're going to make it. And I know that after one day. So uh, I'm pretty happy about that. And what else? I had the love book theme going off in my head I heard while you were saying it. <laughs> I don't think yeah. it's that kind of connection I mean, for him, though. Yeah. No, it's I, not. I know. I'm talking about clinical uh, professionals. <laughs> I, I know, but it was here. still funny in my head. So it was good. I, I had it to was. give voice to it. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. What <laughs> else? What else do you guys want to know? You've been I don't, busy, I mean, busy though. Life. Super busy, like you know, chug a chug chug. Yeah. Work and podcasting. You know, this it's, is life. It's a, it's a fun life. <laughs> it's a fun life. Oh, okay. I will go here. And uh, Michelle, I already know what you're going to say. Uh oh. But in our last episode, Michelle and I went on Facebook Live and we did a discussion on the art of argument. And I think it's a valuable conversation that we had. However, I did not sound like a professional in that episode. I was not articulate. I essentially just kept repeating myself and saying, this is bad. I am not good at this. I am very bad at this. That's pretty much all I could say. And in as I've been editing it and kind of looking back on the conversation, it's hard not to like be super critical of myself and say, you know, like you should be more put together. Like, why would anyone come to you for advice after listening to this episode? Why would anyone continue to listen to your show after they listen to this episode? And I understand it's a little imposter syndrome-esque, but just with everything that's been going on in my life, I haven't been the most articulate. And it, it just kind of is that way in my life right now where it's just kind of there's so much going on. That but it's real. I just haven't really been... It's real. Yeah. And I th- and again, you know, I've said this to you many, many times. I feel like when you are your, your authentic self, even if it doesn't come across as professional as you would like it to or whatnot, it still lends in this air of credibility that draws people because now they feel comfortable being themselves. And often they're feeling and experiencing the same thing. So I think it's a positive all the way across. But but a lot of our listeners, you know, may be looking for a mental health podcast to get advice 
you know, to not listen to other mental health professionals <laughs> Melt talk down. about how mentally ill they are. <laughs> like, um, you know. I'm sorry, but uh, I've been doing this for over 30 years. And most mental health pro- uh, professionals have meltdowns. Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, that's well known. You know, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I remember sitting in my supervisor's office one day and a therapist comes charging in and she went, fuck this motherfucking place. Fuck everybody. Fuck <laughs> you all. Fucking screw you all. I quit this fucking motherfucking job. You can shove it up your ass. And she went on for five minutes and then she said, of course, I'm not quitting because I need to goddamn money, but I needed to say that. <sighs> and then I, and I looked, bet she felt better. I, I looked at her and I went. Wow, do you, do you feel better now? And and so, and suddenly the profession became more normalized for me, and and yes. I was like, I was like, wow, that that was kind of cool. I, I like that she yeah. did that. It's cathartic. <laughs> it's cathartic, and and like I said, it's real. And I think people are drawn to authenticity, and they want to know that. Yeah, they want to know that other people are feeling the same things they're feeling, so that they don't feel alone. And as we have discussed before, Seth, you know this, most people in the mental health field actually have a lot of mental health issues they're trying to deal with. Well, that's why they're so well-versed. Yeah, that they're they're well-versed because of that, because they know it. We teach best what we have learned. Exactly. I just wish I was better at conflict resolution. Well, everybody should be better at conflict resolution. I just wish that I was a little more... Put together so, and a little more articulate so that I could actually offer advice rather than just saying, I'm really, really bad at it. Look at what happened last so, week. You know, I'm I'm tired uh, of that. So just learn to talk to the turd. Spend time with the turd. <laughs> and yoga we're back full circle. <laughs> <laughs> Sing with the turd. Pet the turd. Um, Sing to the oh, turd. Oh, don't go that far. <laughs> don't go that far. <laughs> Oh. Or at least don't tell and me about one it. More, <laughs> one more thing that I would note, I have, which I don't know, I may cancel it, but through my job, they offer 16 free counseling sessions for better help. That's good. And I have a therapy appointment tomorrow at 6 that's p.m. That's good. I think that's great. You know what's but, funny? I have a lot of therapists that will reach out and and get a therapist, and then they'll say they gave me the same damn worksheets that I give my my clients. So forget that. Yeah, they've seen it, done it. That's <laughs> so, true. Yeah, they kind of they kind of bump, but it's always good to to have therapy. I think everybody should have therapy. So well, I got all at kinds. least somebody you can talk to. Honestly, I mean, I mean, I don't. Yeah, I think that's really important. Yeah. No, I agree. I very much encourage it. I just, you know. I got a lot. And I'm notoriously bad about it, so. Bad about what? Yeah, our listeners know. Uh, (laughs) Smart ass. God. I'm notoriously bad at really giving away the pieces of myself that are the most difficult. Like, experiences I can share, that's not a problem. But what I'm truly feeling deep down, that I have more of a problem bringing out into the open to people because it feels like a burden being put on somebody else. And I don't want to do that. So I have a tendency to hold on to that stuff, which as I find out often is unhealthy. Yes. And it only leads to a much bigger blow up mm-hmm. and a lot of introspection that's not comfortable. Good so segue. It's, yeah. Well, we have to have those. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, our topic of the month is... <laughs> 
major depressive disorder. So yes, the good that's old, what we're going to be discussing. The good old MDD, you know. Yeah. When I was doing biopsychosocials, that's the go-to diagnosis right there. Yeah. F code thirty-two well, point zero. Oh my God! You guys know all the codes. I work for an I insurance company. I know it company. from experience. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I, for the longest time, you know, I had to do authorizations for psychiatric inpatient, uh, psychiatric detox, yeah. residential, PHP, IOP, you know, and, and part of what we have to gather is the diagnosis. So, yeah, I have that code memorized. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think, but I think it's important that we, I mean, we're going to go more into this as we go through the month, but I mean, as on this episode, it's just more of an overview and, you know, everybody has, a, I think, a different idea in their mind when you hear the word depression. We have an expectation of what that looks like based probably upon some experience that we've had or somebody that's close to us has had. And unfortunately, there's a lot of misconception about that. So when we're talking about major dis depressive disorder, we're not talking about an occasional feeling of sadness or, you know, even situational like grief, depression that goes along with grief. We're, we're talking about something that's not a lot more difficult to define because it doesn't look the same for every single person, or at least that's my understanding. Now, you two are the mental health professionals, so you correct me if I'm wrong, but it, I mean, am I correct? It doesn't look the same for every person. No, no, no. it doesn't. No, it doesn't. And, and, and the thing is, is every mental health professional must assess based upon what the client is bringing to that professional. So if a client comes in and they're only telling you X, Y, and Z as far as symptomology goes, you either have to dig and ask questions to really make sure that you're getting the appropriate diagnosis, or if they're vague about it, you know, I mean, sometimes that leaves a lot of room for, you know, wiggle room to try to right. try to figure out what in the heck is going on with them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I know, I, I mean, I can only rely on my own experience because if I've, I have dealt with depression for the greatest majority of my life. And I didn't know that when I was younger. I didn't know what was wrong. I just knew that I was really, really struggling. And if, if we get down to the nitty gritty of it, if, you know, we want some kind of textbook def definition, we're talking about a persistent feeling of like sadness or loss. And it, it, it affects how you feel. It affects how you think. It affects how you behave. And it has a variety of emotional and physical problems that go along with it. Like sometimes you're not capable of your day-to-day -day activities. And even so far as to say, sometimes life doesn't feel like, like worth, like it's worth living anymore. Of course, mm -hmm. that's on the very serious end of the spectrum and not to diminish the entire spectrum, but that's obviously much more serious. I'd push, I'd but, push back a little bit in kind okay. of saying that suicide's on the very, severe end of the spectrum it's very prevalent at least thoughts of well death yeah i didn't mean it i don't mean it's not prevalent, prevalent. yeah i mean I'm, well, I'm just saying like i thought okay i worked four years for a mental health crisis line i was dealing with people calling in who are suicidal depressed anxious psychotic home like all of it you know we got the whole range and part of 
The last two years, when I worked at the crisis line, I was a follow-up coordinator. My job was if they called in and they were suicidal, we offered follow-up. And I followed up with them weekly until I got them linked to ongoing mental health services. And part of why, when I left that job and I moved over to an insurance company, you know, and I was working for an employee assistance program, my thought was, hey, I spent all of this time serving the people who were you know, they didn't have any resources. They didn't have any support. You know, it, that explains why the suicide rate is so much higher. And I was thinking that by moving to an EAP that I would be dealing less with suicide because I thought, well, these individuals are going to have more resources, right? They're employed. They've got family. They've got all of these things. I'm not going to see as much of that. And I was dead wrong. I have dealt, when I was working on the phones at my job, I was dealing with suicide the same amount, if not more, than what I was with the crisis line. So just kind of, I just wanted to throw that out there because it's very prevalent and it's very common to, to run with depression. Can I add something to that? Of course. Um, When it comes to uh, suicide, we have to also look at the the spectrum of that from Mm -hmm. suicidal ideation to thoughts, intense plans all the way down, you know? So plan means an intent because we can say that everybody has thought about suicide at one point or, or another in their life, you know, but how far has it gotten from just the thought of, maybe everybody would be better without me to all the way down to having a plan, knowing how you would execute and having the means to execute that. So there's a whole entire spectrum with that. So the serious of that, of that. So I can see where, yes, you would, you would put that in with the symptomology of that, but you also look at the degrees of, of suicidality. Correct. And I, you know, right. And I'm just talking about, having the thought. And you are 100% correct. There is a huge difference between having what I would call passive suicidal thoughts, i.e. I don't want to be here anymore, to having serious suicidal thoughts with a plan, means, intent. And really the thing we need to pay attention to is how specific are they being. Yeah. Right. Especially when they start talking about things. The more specific they are around those issues, the greater the risk. But let's let's look at the actual DSM diagnosis of depression. Now, I don't have the DSM-5 because it's left in my office because of COVID. So I pulled it up online, but okay. I'm going to read what the online is telling me. But Michelle, you have a DSM-5. I'm hoping you do. It's on my bookshelf. Yes. No, now, it's that's on my bookshelf. I can get it. Well, I can then, get it. Nope. No, that's not helpful. <laughs> I'll just read this. We're going to believe. <laughs> we're going to believe what psychcomnet.net is telling me. All right. The DSM outlines the following criteria to make a diagnosis of depression. The individual must be experiencing five or more symptoms during the same two-week period, and at least one of the symptoms should either be one, depressed mood, and two, loss of interest or pleasure. So let me run through. I've got eight things here. Um, They would need to have five of these and at least one of them being depressed mood or loss of interest. So depressed mood most of the day, nearly every day. Markedly diminished interest or pleasure in all or almost all activities most of the day, nearly every day. Significant weight loss when not dieting or weight gain 
or decrease or increase in appetite nearly every day, a slowing down of thought and a reduction of physical movement observable by others, not merely subjective feelings of restlessness or being slowed down, fatigue or loss of energy nearly every day, feelings of worthlessness or excessive or inappropriate guilt nearly every day, diminished ability to think or concentrate or indecisiveness nearly every day, and recurrent thoughts of death, recurrent suicidal ideation without a specific plan or a suicide attempt or a specific plan for, com- for completing suicide. Right. Thoughts. And again, I think it's important here to, no- to note, as we have on most of the things that we've discussed, that it doesn't mean it's any less serious if you don't have every bit of the diagnosable If you're high on the spectrum and you're falling just short of that diagnosis, it doesn't mean it's not important. It's still very important. That because I think the majority of people will never actually go get a diagnosis. Correct. They live with depressive symptoms. I have a statistic on that actually. Oh, do you? Yes. What is it? Over fifty percent. Wow. Of of the people that have anxiety or depression in this country will never go get treatment. Right. And and I know because I was one of them for a long, long, long time. And really, the only, I mean, you can get a diagnosis and like seeing a therapist for billing purposes through insurance, but a lot of the time you get your diagnosis when you see a psychiatrist, right. i.e. when you take that step and you decide to actually get on an antidepressant medication right. um, is normally when a diagnosis is generally provided. Well, with our agency, we have an intake process that includes a biopsychosocial, and that's when the provisional mm-hmm. diagnosis comes into play, um, not necessarily mm-hmm. when they see a, a psychiatrist. So, we do also assessments like the PHQ-9, which is a very good identifier of, of depression. So do we. The PHQ-9 is a is a, one of the gold standards for identifying depression. And if you look that up online, just type in PHQ-9 and, and you take that and your score is, is rather high, that can help you to let yourself know that, uh, you know, you might need to seek treatment to help yourself uh, because you have some significant depressive uh, symptoms. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk uh, about each of these things because I think, as Michelle mentioned, regardless of having a diagnosis or not, any of these symptoms are concerning, yeah. in my opinion. It, it, it's kind of evidence that, hey, Things aren't really right. And maybe we could look at this and work around ways of fighting back on these symptoms. And I, as a mental health professional, as we were talking earlier, you know, that a lot of mental health professionals struggle with mental health issues. I have a diagnosis of major depressive disorder. And I have been informed that my depression is by and large due to a traumatic brain injury from when I was a kid. And this is not going to go away. You know, my I have will have forever a lifelong battle with depression, primarily because of my brain and the trauma that it went through. But let's let's talk about these symptoms. So when this says depressed mood most of the day, what? And I know this is pretty self-explanatory, but what do we mean by depressed mood? Hmm. See, I think it's really nebulous in, in my in my estimation. That's a pretty subjective 
description because every one of us might describe that differently or experience it differently. And it still might be a depressive period. So I'm not sure how to answer that, to be honest. I mean, I don't want to say, I don't want to be stereotypical and say, oh, it means you sit around crying all day because that's not true. Not for me anyway. I can't say that for everybody. I mean, I think you can use a general term of saying a person is feeling down. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we're not saying you have depression. We're saying depressed mood. Sure. Which that can be situational though. So, I mean, does that count or does it, you know, is that just its own thing? Yeah. It totally can be situational. There's such a thing as situational depression. For a lot of of people, you can experience depression and it not be a lifelong battle. You know, it kind of depends on on whether it's genetic situations or, you know, trauma. Right. What do you think, PK? You, the way I look at this, okay, first of all, we have criteria because we want to put together the different criteria because we're looking for several signs and symptoms and it helps us Mm -hmm. to stack them together. So it's kind of like when you go into the ER and the doctor's looking to see if you have a broken arm, they're going to move it, they're going to shift it, they're going to take x-rays, they're going to do several different things to rule out whether or not you have a broken arm. And when you fit all of these different things, they're going to say, you have a broken arm, and this is the treatment. So this is why we have criteria in place, because we want to tick off at least a few of these boxes, because some people are just Eeyores. They're, they're just kind of on, right. on the Eeyore side of things. And that's just kind of how they are. They're a little bit more pessimistic and things like that. So what we need to look at is, has your baseline changed? Has the person that you are normally Good. like, has that changed? Now, some people, they're struggling with depression all of their life, or maybe after an incident, like what, what Seth is talking about. But, you know, Is this interfering with what you want to do? Do you feel like the mood that you're having is interfering with the quality of life you want to have? So just like with the broken arm, I can't do anything until I get this fixed. Then you almost have that pervasive kind of feeling that unless I get this fixed, I can't do what I want to do uh, with my life. So there's something wrong. There's like an inherent feeling of something's not quite right with my brain and, you know, and my mood just doesn't feel quite right. Or maybe my friends are telling me, dude, you know, something's wrong and you need to go get help. So there's, there's several different flags that are going up around you. And, and those are, those are the things that you have to pay attention to. So it's not just, you know, it's not just your an Eeyore kind of personality. Right. I really like I really, really like how you mentioned the deviation, um, that it is a change. Mm-hmm. And, and specifically, and I know we're primarily talking about depression here, but we talked about suicide earlier. And I just want to note specifically for individuals under the age of 18, very much pay attention to that. If you see any sudden changes in behavior, if someone goes from being very sad and sad as their baseline, and now they're acting very happy, I'm concerned. If someone's typically very happy and now they're all of a sudden very sad, 
I'm concerned. We need to look at those major changes from the actual baseline because just if they're being, giving away, yeah, right. Well, yeah, then if they're giving a, away things like possessions and things like that, those are also big, big oh, triggers. Those are huge. Those aren't. Those are warning actual signs. warning signs. That's yeah. like if people are starting to give things away, it's it's not just oh this person might be struggling. It's we need to have a conversation. Yeah. Yeah, intervention. Because that's that's beyond a risk factor. That's that's a warning sign for sure. So this other one says marked diminished interest or pleasure in all or almost all activities. And so what I often when I was working for the crisis line, one of the ways that I would assess depression is is legitimately asking, have you lost interest in things that you used to enjoy? So as we're talking about changing in, you know, like massive changes in behavior, massive changes in mood. But let's also look at, are have you lost interest in the things that you typically enjoy? Bingo. Things that have historically brought you joy, that make you happy, that you like to do, right? Maybe you really like to, I don't know, go fishing, and now that's the last thing you want to do. Or maybe you really enjoyed reading and Picking up a book is the last thing you want to do. Are you losing interest in the things that you used to enjoy is is a concern. Yeah, I can I connect that with isolation as well. Yep. Are you pulling away from socialization? Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Are you avoiding your friend's text messages? <laughs> you know, and, I, and yeah. that's like, and that's pretty common, but like I'm talking in combination with the other stuff, you know, is that interest to want to be around other people gone where you just want to spend all your time alone? And if we're going to bring up isolation, it's not listed in here, but I would also note that with isolation often comes substance use. Mm-hmm. So if you're finding yourself smoking, drinking, participating in recreational drugs, and you're doing it alone, that is something to pay attention to. Because the question is, why are you doing it then? Because it's no longer social drinking. You're using that substance to cope. This is a good spot to mention trauma-informed care. Because a lot of times, things that that propel us into depression our traumas in our mm-hmm. lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, a woman loses a child. Somebody loses a friend. Uh, something bad happens. A car accident. Uh, loses a job. Uh, something just really bad happens. Divorce. Whatever you know. Something traumatic in your life happens, and that can propel you into uh, that depressive mode. And and these are very very important markers to make because and. You know, if, if you don't mind me elaborating just for a second on this. No, I go think ahead. It's please, please. Okay. okay. Because PTSD is like, I'm in love with trauma-informed care and, and talking about PTSD. It's like, it's near and dear to my heart. There are, there are crossover symptoms on every single diagnosis. And it is my firm belief that all of these, all of these things diagnostically tie into one another. Mm-hmm. And so we, people often get diagnosed with something and that's not really the diagnosis that should be there. And it's because what they convey to the person that's assessing them is not all the information. They don't get the full blueprint. Maybe they're in a hurry. Maybe they're trying to just get that assessment done and get them out of there. 
You know, maybe they're not intuitive. Maybe that person's having a bad day. You know, maybe you're in such a crisis mode that you're not conveying the right information for whatever reason. You're not you're not getting the proper diagnosis. So there's crossover symptoms in there. But trauma, you know, trauma is important to look at, especially with depression, because when someone has PTSD, there is always, always, always an element of depressive symptoms in there. And when you address the PTSD, oftentimes that depression wanes. So it doesn't necessarily mean that depression is the primary diagnosis. But a lot of times people with PTSD, the first time they go in, that's the very first thing they get diagnosed with is depression. Oh, yeah. And, and the, you know, the, the person that sees them oftentimes is a primary care physician that has no psychiatric training whatsoever. And they go, take these antidepressants and uh, go home. And so, yeah. That's what happened to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Me Which too. was another whole nightmare all in and of itself. I did not do well on antidepressants. And not only that, but it included a good amount of guilt, religion inspired guilt for dealing with it that way rather than by faith and, you know, just being in right relationship with God. So, but that's another whole subject well, I think so has to, I think it should be included, but what's that? You, what? why would you ever take an antidepressant? You are an antidepressant. All an antidepressant. What I mean by that is an antidepressant attacks neurotransmitters in your brain. It literally blocks them, so you have more serotonin in your brain at a given right, time. Because right. Ser- you disagree, PK? Go for it. Uh, well, okay. I'm just SSRIs. saying exercise. Uh, exercise produces serotonin, and Michelle's a bodybuilder. But I haven't always been. And when I was diagnosed with it and when I was put on antidepressants, I was not. I was, that was not a part of my life. Go ahead, PK. <laughs> okay. SSRIs, they're in, they're inhibitors. They're, they're reuptake inhibitors. Okay. So what happens is, is your brain is releasing serotonin and then it sucks it back up. And it's releasing it and it sucks it back up. So what these drugs do is it causes your brain to let go and then it can't suck it back up. So it leaves the serotonin in play in the brain. So let's just for the sake of argument, say you've got 10 little suckers in there swimming. You just got 10 little serotonin suckers in there swimming. Okay. And you take these uptake re, you know, inhibitors, you take the SSRI and it doesn't allow it to suck it back up into the brain. So these drugs are stopping your brain from its natural inclination or its natural ability to bring it back. So it's freezing those pumps from taking the serotonin back. Okay. And that helps. It it gives you a measure of help. But you have to increase those drugs over time to get the same level of help. The biggest nightmare of all is Paxil because Paxil has like the worst withdrawal symptoms in the universe. You can have electric shocks. You can have horrific, horrific withdrawal symptoms from that stuff. And they will not tell you about all of those things when they put you on it. But you can have withdrawal symptoms from Paxil for up to three years after you get off of that medication. So, you know, I don't want to rant about that, but I want to say Get yourself informed about the medication that they want to give you. Because to me, 
It's a bandage. It is like a crutch. It is something to use in the short term. But in the long term, find answers that help and work for you in a better way and educate yourself so that you do not harm yourself in the long run. You know, because there are things out there that are natural, like 5-HTP that you can get over the counter anywhere. And Big Pharma did a study with 5-HTP and they put it together with one of these SSRIs. And guess what? It, it increased its efficacy by 600%. Wow. So 5-HTP all by itself increased the efficacy by 600%. You can get this at any Walmart, any Walgreens, any CVS. And it increases the serotonin in your stomach, which is where all the all the serotonin is, right? So if you learn how to take it and how to take it naturally, you can increase the serotonin in your brain. And But Big Pharma doesn't want you to know that. So these are ways that you can help to increase the serotonin in your brain without having to go that route. So sorry. Had no, to get on that's that fine. No, and you're, you're absolutely right with the warning. That is the one that I was put on. As a matter of fact, uh, and, and there was a whole cycle of events that happened. As I said, there was a lot of religious guilt that went along with that. And nobody knew that I had gone to the doctor, not even my husband. I I didn't tell anybody. Um, But I was so at the end of my rope, so to speak, with feeling the way that I felt. And I was literally afraid that it was affecting how I cared for my kids because my kids were little at that time. So I decided to do this. And so they immediately wanted to put me on medication. I had denied that several times previous to that. And then finally, I just said, I can't anymore. I have, I have to have help. And so, um, they put me on and that was the medication they put me on. You're right. There were no warnings of any kind of side effects. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, they give you the pamphlet or whatever, and you're supposed to read all through that. Right. But the, I mean, Three who does that? Words. I mean, when you feel like <laughs> shit and you don't know if you want to live anymore, I mean, yeah, I'm going to take 10 minutes, you know, to start reading this thing. No, that doesn't happen. You take the medication because the doctor told you it's going to help. And I did. And it did help. I'll be honest. For a little while, I felt a lot better. But the problem is that after a little while, I didn't feel anything. And I found that to be even worse. And then coupled along with that was, of course, these ongoing feelings of guilt that nobody knew that I wasn't a good enough Christian. I didn't have enough faith. I was being a bad example to my children. I mean, the list was very, very long of the guilt that I was living with. And so, again, without consulting anybody, not even the doctor this time, I just decided to stop taking it. And I stopped cold turkey. And I ended up on the couch for two weeks. I couldn't function. And it was horrible. And I finally had to tell my husband what had happened. And he, we went back to the doctor and they said, you've got to go back on it and we'll wean you off of it if you want to come off of it. But the withdrawal symptoms were absolutely horrific. The electric shock feeling is not anything like you can imagine. It's horrifying. And it lasted a long, long time. And when I complained to the doctor that I was having withdrawal symptoms, they told me that I didn't know what I was talking about. That didn't exist. And uh, obviously it does. A lot of people since then have shared their experiences with me when we've discussed it and they've had the same experience. And now, of course, it's much more common knowledge that that is one of the side effects. So it's a, it's a really desperate place to find yourself as it pertains to yeah. depression, trying to decide what you should and shouldn't do. Because often you're isolated. You, you're not looking, you're not able to ask for help. You don't know who to ask for help, even if you wanted to. And maybe you're not even getting the best advice. You're just getting, like you said, a Band-Aid. And, and, and it has you're trying to trust effects. the professional. Yeah. 
Right. And, You're trying to trust the professional that's telling you, you know, this is good. And, I, and I'm not bashing it no. uh, because there are some medications that are good. I mean, if I hadn't had some of the drugs that I did uh, when I first crashed, I wouldn't be here today. Right. So there are some that, that do help and they're, they're important. So I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I'm just saying that it's, it's important to educate right. yourself. And it's also important to realize that not everything works for everybody. Just because it right. wasn't the right fit for me doesn't mean it's just wrong in, in its entirety. I, I would never make that determination for anybody else or, or nor would I demonize somebody else, you know, for choosing that route. That's their choice. But I know for Absolutely. me that that was not, it was not a workable, not a workable solution. And I do find it interesting, your point about primary diagnosis, because as it pertains to PTSD, like you were saying, I do know that that's an issue I have. And so here I'm thinking that the depression is the primary, but maybe that isn't it. And that had never occurred to me that maybe it was the offspring, if you will, of something else that should be dealt with. And because that does make a lot of sense. But again, see, this why this, that's why this topic is so very important, but it's also so very difficult because it's so subjective. And well, me mental health in itself is yes, a quagmire, yeah. you know, I yeah. mean, I think the, the brain is still a, a huge undiscovered country for us. Oh, the majority of our brain, we only use such a small portion of it, you know, knowingly that <laughs> who knows what we could accomplish if we were able to use just even a tiny percentage more. So it, it's a daunting subject, which of course is why we're trying to take more than just, you know, one episode to deal with any kind of specific topic. We want to, we want to give it its due. And because there is so much involved in this, it's, it's an important conversation. So what, what symptom are we on now? Seth? Yeah. What do we got? Well, I just want to come back to, you were like, before I, I'm, I'm just going to note this, like you were like on the <laughs> serotonin thing. First of all, that whole thing was to make fun of Michelle for being a bodybuilder and you ruined that I know by was. being super I know, serious. Cause I ignored and, you. <laughs> and, 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 and you came at me like I was I'm saying treated? something incorrect when in fact, the whole story you just illustrated, it's exactly what I was saying, um, was that it's about the serotonin and we have too much. It, it keeps it in our brains. Anyways, whatever. We are look, on. Look at all, look at all that. I You're know. justified. Yeah, right? You feel better. You feel better now. I do. Right? I do a That's what bit. you it's get for trying to give me shit again, Seth. God. you. How many takes <laughs> did we do for this episode? Okay. We are on three. <laughs> Significant Enough weight that loss. my stomach hurts. <laughs> <laughs> significant weight loss when not dieting, dieting or weight gain or decrease mm -hmm. or increase in appetite nearly every day. And really, it's any deviation. So it could be I have more appetite or I have less appetite. It could be I'm gaining more weight or I'm losing more weight, which makes it subjective, right? Because we all go through weight changes. But this is looking at a significant for And I'll provide an example with this. As someone that struggles with major depressive disorder, when I get super, super stressed and my depression kicks in, I don't eat. Mm -hmm. I lost, uh, a few months ago, I lost 15 pounds. And, and I you're still thin haven't already. Gained it. Right. And I still haven't gained it all back because I couldn't eat. Right. So just kind of noting, like, it's when that appetite decreases, but it also can be an increase. So, like, if you're noticing right. that you're eating a lot more as if in a way, you know, that there's, and I don't mean this in a, in a judgmental, not judgment, hello, I do it, but like eating your feelings, 
that also can be involved with this as well. So we're looking at change in appetite and then as a consequence of that change in weight either way. But what do we think? Yeah. Makes sense well, to me. <laughs> I will I will say that this is again a crossover symptom that we have to watch for mm-hmm. because people that have anxiety have a tendency to have stomach issues. Yes. Um, people that have anxiety have a tendency to have overactive gastric issues. And so when they have a lot of anxiety, they will not eat. They will have upset stomachs, you know. So it's, it's important diagnostically to weed through this and to make sure that when we're talking about this, that we are also discussing a drop of weight in a short period of time because yes. sometimes when you talk to someone, we'll say, you'll say, you know, have you lost a lot of weight? And they'll say, yeah, I've lost 30 pounds, but that's over the last year and a half, you know? <laughs> so, you know, and I've been exercising and I've been doing this and, and da, right. da, you know, but, but to weed through that and make sure that it's attributed to, uh, attributed to that depressive thing. So it's linked to the fact that they have depressive thoughts. So I can't eat. Why can't you eat? You know, what's, what's going on? You know, what's, you know, let's explore that. What's happening with you? Well, you know, I mean, I, all I can think about is my Joey passing. And every time I think about him, I can't even like, I can't even pick up my fork. You know, every time I pick up something, I'm just thinking about Joey and, and the tears come, you know, then you know that that's attached to that depressive thought, you know? So to look for the origin of that is very important diagnostically when you're talking to somebody that that has depressive symptoms and to make sure it's not linked to anxiety, you know? Well, I mean, I think I I don't know anyone who's ever been given a diagnosis of depression without also having a diagnosis of anxiety. The two go hand in hand. In fact, if we talk if we talk medication, even antidepressants are often used Mm -hmm. to treat anxiety because the symptomology is so similar across the board. They're two very different things, but they tend to, if you have one, you likely are also experiencing the other, but it is important that we distinguish and you see, you disagree. So let's go there. I mean, I'm just, this is my personal experience. I mean, from my personal experience and then also seeing it with clients, I've, the two typically go together, but what do you think? Well, I mean, those are the two biggies, you know, those are the two highest diagnosed disorders in the world is anxiety and depression. So frequently you're going to see them together. But that does not mean that you do not see them separately. We have a right. lot of people. I mean, in our agency alone in uh, 2017, we saw over 22,000 clients. So, you know, we saw a lot of people come through that just singularly had major depressive disorder or dysemia or, you know, I always say that name like I have a hard time pronouncing the <laughs> Or, you know, they, they just have an anxiety disorder, you know, PTSD or anxiety or generalized anxiety disorder, you know, they, they have those by themselves. So they do occur individually, you know, it is not a a preponderance, but frequently because those are the two heavy hitters, you'll see them diagnosed side by side. Because when you ask somebody, do you have anxiety? Well, yeah, you know, but I can't tell you how many clients and, and, you know, Michelle, you got to look at me. 
you got to look at me. I, I can't tell you how many clients I've had come into my office and their posture is like this. And I'll yeah. say, do you have anxiety? Yeah, I have anxiety like every day, man. I'm just so full of it right now. I've, I've just got like horrible anxiety. <laughs> I was thinking to myself, oh, okay. <laughs> you have anxiety. <laughs> you know, so, so, you know, you have a lot of people that are self-deluded, you know, that think that they have anxiety. You have a lot of people that have borderline personality disorder and they'll tell you that they have 72 different diagnoses. I'm not kidding you. Well, you know, well, yes, they'll tell I'm, you that they have everything. Yes. Because they want to have every diagnosis in the book. They want to have schizophalogosis. They, they want it all. <laughs> now there's a new term. <laughs> I'm have to I Google literally that one. just, I just, I just made that up, Seth. I swear, I made that up. Schizophrenogenesis. Wait a minute, let me put there. That's not a diagnosis. There's got to be a Google definition of that somewhere. Yeah, so there's schizoaffective okay. disorder, but there's no schizophrenogenesis. I don't think that's what she meant. <laughs> All right. Oh my goodness. Another one is a slowing down of thought and a reduction of physical movement, observable by others, not merely subjective feelings of restlessness or being slowed down. I, I think in the PHQ it says moving so slowly that other people notice. Yeah. It's such a weird, weird way to say that, you know? I always picture like somebody moving like a turtle or something. You know? Slow-mo. It is, it is it is very 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 rarely that I get people that check that on the PHQ nine. Very rarely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know about you guys or what your experience. Well, I mean, do you think? That. I mean, you're you're saying it's something that's observable by someone else. It's not subjective experience. How often do we really slow down ourselves to notice those kind of things about other people? We live in a very fast paced world. I think it's rare that we probably take that moment to observe and say, oh, you know, that person seems like they've been really inactive. I don't know that there's a lot of people noticing things like that. That's a guess, though. And this does, it kind of applies, but I don't know if it does. But I mean, because I feel like this, what I'm going to share, I think actually goes with the next one as well. But I mean, I hear so frequently difficulty getting out of bed in the morning. Yeah. I mean, and, and again, I, that that's probably speaking more to fatigue and loss of energy, which is the next one on the list. But yeah, when you're fatigued and you have a loss of energy, you yeah, probably are moving a little bit slower, right? Right. So, and there's some some people that are like inherently like that, you know. Right. They hit their alarm, you know, sixteen times before they get yeah. out of bed, you know. Well, I think this is a little so, bit different, though. It's like this is the which. Let's go to the next one, which is fatigue or loss of energy nearly every day. It's you. You can't. It's not like I want to sleep more. It's I can't physically move. I the energy is not there. the The motivation is gone. The drive is gone. It's dead to the world in a way. And I know I'm using some language that's pretty generalized, but I'm trying to paint that picture, you know, because it's not like, yeah. oh, I just want to sleep more. Getting out of bed is like moving a mountain. It's an effort. Yeah. The loss of motivation, the loss of interest. I, I can't tell you how many kids I have dealt with where the older generation has this attitude toward them 
you just need to buck up. Yeah. And get a job. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or, or, you just know, get over I mean, it, snap it, out of it. And, and they are suffering with depression and they, number one, they totally, totally don't want them to go see a psychiatrist because that is just, you know, not allowed. You know, you can't go, you can't go to see any kind of, you know, helping professional because that's just not cool in our family. And they get ostracized and they get called lazy yeah. by their family members but they have a lack of interest, a lack of motivation. And it's, it's really tragic. It's tragic because they do want to have those things. And they're the, and they're often the biggest dreamers, you know, yeah. I mean, they'll, they'll talk and fantasize about wanting this better life and stuff, but the wherewithal to do that, it's just not there. Yeah. Yeah. The whole thing is very sad. I mean, it just is. I, because it, it's so isolating and confusing in in the experience of it, you know, and then it's so stigmatized that if you even do try and talk about it, that immediately there's certain, you know, perceptions that go along with it that, that make you want to stay quiet. It's, okay. So it's, oh my gosh. Yeah. So I agree with all of that, but I will say that we've seen a major decrease in stigma around these issues. I yes. mean, it, it, it's pretty commonplace now. I mean, I'm just saying, if we look historically at yes, the amount of stigma right. on this to where we are now, people are far, now granted, people are far more apt to say that they're depressed and anxious, even without a diagnosis. It's, we, it's, we I are better about and, that. And, and can I, when, I'm going to go yeah. one more place. I, and I agree with you, PK, but I also have seen it swing the other way too. Having worked for a mental health crisis line, I have talked to plenty of parents who call us and scream, get my kid on goddamn medication or else I'm kicking out of him out of my house. And my job was always to work with the parents and get that kid into a psychiatrist. And then when the, when of course it didn't make a difference, then it was, you know, my fault. But I just, <laughs> I, I, I see both. You know, yeah, I, I, yeah. I see there's definitely stigma that's still existing, but then I also see just get my kid on medication because that's going to fix all my problems. You know, I think parents a lot of times have these, these glasses as if medication's the answer and it is definitely not medication is a tool. It's not the answer, but I just wanted to point that there are, out because yeah. it's there are, not clear cut and dry. There, there are some parents that'll change their kids' medications like every two weeks. Yeah. It, it's absolutely scary. I have seen some parents that are like, oh my goodness, I, I can't imagine what those poor kids go through. And, and the psychiatrist let them do that, mm -hmm. you know, and they try to caution them, but the parents like, no, this isn't working. You have to do something else or you have to add this, you know, and the kids coming in there and there's drool coming down mm -hmm. their face because they're so over medicated. It's just unbelievable what some parents, you know, get away with. And, mm -hmm. and uh, it's, it's unfortunate, uh, but it does happen. So there is, there is that, but I, I, I will say that the stigma is better with depression and anxiety just because so many more people are suffering with it. But your big stigma is with bipolar disorder, Yeah, you know, and schizophrenia. Those are, those are your two big ones, you know? Well, and I would, ar I would argue or question anyway, more acceptable, less stigmatized in general. Yeah. However, as it comes down to a specific occurrence, even people that would be 
empathetic about somebody suffering from depression or somebody dealing with anxiety when it touches their own lives or their families have a tendency to want to push that away. I still think, and then that's my anecdotal response. Right. So it's, it's less stigmatized in general, but as it specifically occurs, there's still stigma as associated with it in families. Yeah. Oh, yeah. As though that's not acceptable. And I would also go so far as to say that your example, Seth, of parents that are screaming to put their kid on medication is is just a different form of what PK said as far as buck up, snap out of it, get over it. They're demanding something be done, not because, not so much so that they care about the kid, which is evidenced by the fact that they're willing to change their medication so many times, but more so that they're it's detrimental to how they're living their life and they don't want to deal with it. You're and I know that sounds judgmental, but I'm sorry. I'm going to call a spade a spade. That's just it, that's what it seems like to me. And that's a great point, and you're spot on. My experience, because I think PK is talking specifically of like real examples of kids who are really struggling. Right. My job literally was if they called the the youth connection helpline, we automatically offered follow up. So you, mm-hmm. my entry into this is very very different. Right, but. I would say that the primary issue, it was the parenting. The behaviors that are presenting are due to yeah. the lack of parenting. Huge. And, Huge. and then Huge. we, what, what's happened in the mental, parents, they just want to put a Band-Aid on it. And it, it really comes down to parenting issues. They, they don't know how to raise their children and they just want someone else to take care of it. And it's all about that inconvenience. And I just so many times, I, I and I hated this to see all of these kids at such a young age, especially be put on major serious medications that we still don't have the research on in regards to its effectiveness on children. We have research studies done on adults. We have so many medications that we are prescribing that have not been approved by Doctors for kids. The research not, is not there. Go, PK. And let's also mention so many medications that are being used for not what they were originally intended for. Mm-hmm. They get them improved through the FDA for something else, and then they use it for a different thing. Yeah. Yeah. And that happens a lot, a lot. I, I wanted to say that societally, though, Depression is, is still not accepted as a whole. And, you know, you'll see it in churches. You'll see it in community, any type of community or social setting. Because if someone has what we call SPMI, you know, severe persistent mental illness, they tend to get rejected societally. So if they're in a church setting, we're going to pray for you. But then Bob, if you keep coming and you're a poor Pete and you're mopey and you're depressed, you know, people are going to stop talking to you and we're going to stop praying for you and you're going to end up in the back of the church and, you know, uh, you're going to get the left foot of fellowship. Yeah. If if uh, you're on Facebook and you're communicating and it's always depression, 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 it's just like, woe is me, you know, negative Nancy. Oh, my gosh. When will she ever shut up? You know? So people that are depressed, they can't reach out because they know that they only have a certain number of touches that are negative and people are going to reject them. So they know that that it is not accepted to be themselves and to be real. 
they can't do it. And that flows right in line with the next symptom, which is feelings of worthlessness or excessive or inappropriate guilt nearly every day. And I, I will say when we talk around suicide, one of the most difficult situations to deal with as someone who's experiencing suicidal thoughts is when it really centers on those feelings of worthlessness. Because if they're suicidal for a specific, like, you know, my boyfriend broke up with me or, you know, I, my dog died. Like that's a specific stressor. We can right. work around that. When it's generalized hopelessness and worthlessness and helplessness, it's much deeper and there aren't any easy fixes. Yeah. So that's when we look at the more serious symptoms in regards to that. L- little soapbox here. I have a huge, huge issue with professionals that pull the trigger on people and hospitalize them when they do not need to be hospitalized. Huge, huge. You're going to get me. Apparently Seth does too. You're going to get me. You're going to get me really riled up. You were just saying saying like, you know, I felt bad. I was going to try to go through this quickly for your poor poor wife so that, you know, you were going to be there for her. But you just, you just opened a can of worms. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you something. We had a gal come in years ago and she was coming in for help. She had homicidal ideation. That was scary. And when I say Mm -hmm. scary, I mean scary. When she was describing her homicidal ideation, it would have turned a greenhorn white listening to her. She would talk about how she was going to hurt someone in very vivid detail. And, you know, it was, it was, you know, and here I am like, you know, I've been in the field a long time. Nothing phases me. I mean, my very first, like one of my very first break-in experiences, right, as a, as a young person in mental health, they sent me to a mental hospital to pick up this guy to transport him to a group home. And, um, he was a big dude and, and I'm, I'm five, seven, you know, but I'm not, I'm not huge, you know, and he was a big dude, like bodybuilder, big dude. And he gets into the van, no seatbelts at that time. I'm dating myself. Um, <laughs> and he sits in the front seat of the van and I get in the driver's side. I have no staff with me. and. We start driving. This guy is bald and he looks like the dude from the green mile. <laughs> and I'm driving and he starts talking to me and he's in full blown psychosis. And he's telling me that he is a doctor and he performs lobotomies. Oh my gosh. And he tells me that I need a lobotomy. Oh my gosh. <laughs> At that well, point. I mean, I've been told that too, but like that was <laughs> yeah, to but make not in that straight. situation. <laughs> okay. Okay. Listen. <laughs> moment my right foot betrayed me and pushed toward the floor really hard i imagine (laughs) the van started speeding toward my destination really quickly we need to get there like now like holy hell i've got to get this guy there because he's gonna kill me okay so that's what i'm saying when you're new to the field and somebody starts talking about this stuff it can be scary and intimidating so we've got to educate our mental health professionals to know about things like protective factors you know 
So this lady is is talking to me during a an intake, and I'm I'm doing an assessment with her, and she's telling me all this stuff, and I'm going okay, you know, and I'm typing away, and I'm talking about you know what's what's going on with these homicidal ideations and how she's going to kill people, and uh, she said, I know when it gets to this point, I need to come in and get help. Ding ding ding, I know. That when it gets to this point, I need to come in and get help. So she's telling me, I know that it needs, I need help. I need help at this point, you know. So, you know, we need to get her services and we need to safety plan and we need to get all these, you know, things taken up and, and surrounding her, you know. But as soon as she gets in front of a greenhorn ARNP nurse practitioner who has never heard anything like this before in her life, and she tells the exact same story. The woman goes, you're going to the hospital. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like after mm-hmm. all of that, you know, and and she gets traumatized. And it was horrifically traumatizing. And I had to face off with a police officer. So, I mean, I could go into detail, but I don't want to because of HIPAA. But, but you know, I mean, that's what I'm saying. We have to train our professionals to know what that line is and what protective factors are and, and how to appropriately set those, those safety gauges in place to make sure somebody's going to be okay and do not pull the trigger because some of these places that we're sending people to are so horrific and so traumatizing. One woman told me that they took her bra from her and she's standing there with all these strange men and she's having to cover herself and she's 50 some years old, has never experienced anything like this before. She couldn't sleep at night because there's guys roaming the walls that are in full-blown psychosis and she's scared she's going to get raped. I mean, this is the kind of environment we're sending people into. And, And, you know, if that was your mom, if that was your brother, yeah. if that was your sister, if that was your kid, would you do that? You know, you got to think about that before you pull the trigger. You know, are they really a danger to themselves or others? Right. I, the, this is one of the reasons why I became a corporate clinical trainer. And, and it's why I do what I do. The, but I drive home. I drive home this point so much because and I, I'll bring up a story from my old job. We. Uh, found that we were sending people to the hospital way too much. And and part of that was we started to realize that we had to establish some boundaries, just be, especially with borderlines. We had one that we literally, I was in charge of the safety plan, but we would call the hospital, we would call police on her almost every single day. We had to establish some boundaries. but And we found that if we sent out clinicians, like through our crisis unit, we actually sent clinicians out to meet with people rather than you know, if they call in, they're suicidal. Rather than just doing it over the phone, we would send clinicians out. We found that we diverted from the emergency room seventy-five percent of the time. Beautiful. Uh, if we were able to send a crisis unit, and what I find, what I do in my current job is I'm training clinicians to you've got to stop and think because when you when you call nine one one, guess what? A lot of the time, that has nothing to do with the client. It has everything to do with your insecurity and your fear right. of your own clinical license. And it's about you. It's not about the person. And we know that individuals who go into residential or inpatient, specifically inpatient treatment, and they're they're involuntary detained on a on a Baker Act 72-hour psychiatric hold. We know 
that after that, first of all, it can be an extremely traumatic experience, as you mentioned. Oh my God, they handcuffed them. When's the next? But then after that, when do you think this person's really going to reach out to you again? No. Right. Most of them never come back. They never come right. back. They never come back. They never get help because of some counselor's insecurity. This person will never seek treatment again. And you can develop a we culture have got in your agency. to get in control of this. To do that. Yes. You develop a culture. Yeah. Yeah. And so like part of what I'm all about is de like we've got to educate. Like just because someone is suicidal, it's not a crime. It is not a crime to have suicidal thoughts. And Mm -hmm. just because you have suicidal thoughts does not mean that you need to go to the emergency room. Maybe what you need to do is talk with someone. Why don't we get you in with a therapist? And why don't you call a crisis line and talk to someone who can help you? Granted, that therapist that's on the crisis line is not trigger happy. Ooh, he's on the but soapbox. I just, uh, yeah. So, yeah, this is another episode. Um, we're having you back. It's already determined we're doing a whole episode on suicide. <laughs> we need to finish the symptoms, though. So, on these, uh, on these uh, symptoms, yeah, I want to make sure that we – two we, more. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. No, you're fine. I just want to – because I want to hear what you're going to say, but let's just touch on the other two. Go ahead. Uh, feelings of worthlessness and excessive and inappropriate guilt, as we talked about, diminished ability to think or concentrate, and indecisiveness, not being able to make decisions. Oh my goodness! Not being able to Huge. think through things, kind of that fog, right? Yeah. Kind yeah. of having that brain fog of just and not maybe not even being able to identify your emotions as well. I think that brain fog kind of comes into that. It's like I'm not feeling well, but I don't know what I'm feeling. Yeah. I'm just feeling. Well, almost, almost feeling not there, you know? Yes. Um, Depersonalization. Like vacant. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, disassociated, you know, disassociating. Yep. And I mean, I, I had a friend that was terrible with decisions and had been uh, traumatized as a child, but was not clinically depressed. And we would go into a restaurant and she would look up at the menu and I knew it had begun. And she would stare at that menu for five minutes. There was a line that was building behind us. And I was beginning to get anxious. Mm-hmm. And she would go, oh, what's on that number eight? And she would ask six questions. And then she'd go, oh, but what's on the seven? What do you got? And she would switch and vacillate and go back and forth. And, and meanwhile, I was losing my ever-loving mind because she could not decide what she wanted. And I could feel the pressure of the people behind us. Yeah. But she wasn't clinically depressed. She just couldn't make a decision. So very different, very different. This is, mm-hmm. is definitely a, it's almost like you just get to this point where you just don't care anymore. And, and you just can't care. And you you are definitely absent, not present. Right. Right. Yeah. And then the last symptom is the suicidal thoughts, right. which we're going to be talking about in one of our next episodes. I would like to add another very important symptom that needs to be in there, and that's irritability. With depression, there is definitely irritability, and that's something that needs to be in there. And I and I definitely believe that the DSM, you know, should add that in there. It's it's uh, it's in there for our biopsychosocial. It's part of what we ask. But when we do the biopsychosocial, we ask 
questions like, when did this start? Because those are also important uh, markers for uh, clinical diagnosis. How long has this been happening to you? When is the first time you remember being depressed? What is your first memory? Well, you know, when my dad left my mom. You know, so then you start to gauge, like, how long has this been happening for this person, you know, and then we can kind of see, you know, your history and kind of get a sense of whether or not this is just a mild, you know, depressive disorder, or whether this is kind of more of that major depressive disorder that we're looking at, you know, is this just, you know, something that is seasonal? Does it just happen, you know? During the holidays, you know, is this something because of a death of a loved one that's associated with trauma, you know? So it begins to help us to narrow down clinically for making a good decision for, for diagnosis, getting those answers from you. And so to me, the better the interview, the better the assessor that does that intake on you and the more detailed you are with the information. Don't be worried about taking their time because it's about you. It's all about you. They are there to work for you. You are not there for them. They're there for you. So you just take all of your time and you share your story because it's about your story. It's about getting you help because diagnosis is everything for treatment. So if you get the right diagnosis, you get the right treatment. So in other words, if you come in with a broken arm and they treat you for a broken toe, guess what? You're going to go home, you're going to be in a lot of pain, and you're going to end up going back in. And that's what happens with mental health. You know, if you don't get the right diagnosis, you're going to go through a lot of trial and error. And that's what happens with a lot of people, a lot of people, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. That's my speech. I was diagnosed bipolar once and put on Lamictal. That didn't last long. Sorry, we were talking about medication side effects earlier, and I literally—I was like, I was like, I know it wasn't for depression, but when I looked up, I was like, oh my gosh, it was for bipolar and borderline. So I was like, hey, there you go. They put me on lamictal. I tell you what, I could probably, I could probably do a whole show on medications with what I've learned over the years. You know. Well, that might also be worthy in this uh, this series. I I think we've. I, I would like to talk about treatment for this. So that's definitely going to need to be a, an episode. Yeah, I, mean, I don't like just to kind of just, you know, air this is what it is without talking about next steps and, and how to get that help. But we are going to be covering that in, in future episodes this month. And I'm, I'm just so thankful for you, PK, yeah. for coming on. Thank you for jumping in because that was really and- short notice. Yeah, so. it was very short notice, and we kept you on for a long time. I had, so thank you I so had, much. I'm telling you, I had a power headache when this started, and it it, it, it it left shortly after. So I've had a delightful time with you too. So thank you for, oh, thank you for inviting me. You know, I had a, I had a good time. I appreciate it. Well, you have to come back because you have to finish this discussion then about clinicians and their and have their to, responsibilities. To, to. Yeah, so that has to be a yeah, continued part of this conversation. Yeah, you can't open that can of worms without me. Yeah, you can't. You can't open it and then leave. Mm, I'm gonna have to have have some help controlling Seth. So you know. (laughs) Yeah, I'll get a little passionate. (laughs) I really am. I'm very, very, I'm very, very passionate around this topic. Well, that's and as we were talking about in regards to lived experience, I have lived experience with both depression and due to my battle with sexuality. At one point, I experienced suicidal thoughts. So this is personal for me. Yeah, and. Mm 
I, I'm very, very passionate about helping people in one, getting our clinicians to do their damn jobs. So everyone that's listening to this episode, I want to thank you so much for listening. And if you are interested in our show, please feel free to check out our Facebook group. What else do we have to offer, Michelle? I always do it. So I want to give it to you. I know. And I know, I don't know that I always remember everything. We have our Facebook group, of course. Mm -hmm. You also have the rare, I know it's rare. No, it's not, not really. Ability to support our podcast on Patreon. And when you do become one of our paid supporters, you actually have the word just went right out of my head, Seth. They have what? They have access. They have access to, to both of us through a, a private Marco Polo group. We try to stay active in there. You also have access to bonus material because Seth and I have a tendency to run on and chitter chat right about on. things or go much more in depth into personal experience about things. And we provide that as bonus content to our Patreons or patrons. And patrons. Patrons. And if you are interested in merch, you can check out Mental Merch as well as any of the podcasts on the Fade to Gray Network at uh, storefrontier.com backslash FTG Network. Um, you can get a, uh, a wonderful sweatshirt with uh, Michelle and I as a cartoon. If you really desire, you can find uh, Faded Gray merch uh, that's got my face on it, and it says, Poor Seth. And, you know, <laughs> that's also fun. I, I, would, so, I yeah. would also like to mention and congratulate Seth, because apparently he's been promoted to assistant to the regional manager for <laughs> Faded Gray. So there you do that. <laughs> everyone, else, everyone else on the show, they're all regional <laughs> managers, but I... And the assistant. The assistant to the regional manager. The regional manager. Not assistant, not, re yes. not assistant regional manager, assistant to, assistant to the regional, the regional manager. <laughs> Just to clarify. And yeah. I also want to mention, since we... Yes, it's, right? It's, it's really kind of a slap in the face is what it is. But also, since we have PK Langley on the show today, which we hopefully will have her back, but I want everyone to know about her website which is langleytown.com. PK, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, yes. Uh, langleytown.com kind of has my own journey of deconstruction from religion on it, and there are over 300 Frustrated Grace cartoons on there that I did over like a 10-year period after I left the church, and they're there, some of them are hysterical. A lot of them are really funny. I laughed when I created them and a lot of people enjoyed them and it helped them to process and, and go through deconstruction themselves. And I am doing bookings for December. I actually do uh, sessions with people and just kind of do advice and uh, just impartation into uh, people's lives and, and do my wealth of experience and, and, uh, know-how and uh and just help tutelage the younger generation so i like to do that and i've got some slots open so if you want to go there and uh, schedule with me i will spend some time with you and we can talk about your issues and we'll just kind of walk through uh some things with you and, and give you my undivided attention for what it's worth all righty then i think we did it I think we covered. I think we covered a lot of ground, but we I don't think we. Lot, yes. uh, I don't think that We've we satisfactorily. No, we have only just begun. So if you're interested in this topic, please feel free to check out our next our episode next week. All right, and with that, bye everybody. Bye.